On this episode of Newt's World, what is the recipe for happiness? If you listen to liberal elites or red pill influencers, you say it's making money, living for yourself, and staying single without kids, and you'd be wrong. Nothing predicts happiness better than a good marriage. According to new research by the University of Virginia sociologist Brad Wilcox, our kids and communities, not to mention our civilization as a whole, are much more likely to flourish when the state of our unions are strong. Despite this, record number of Americans are not succeeding at getting or staying married. In his new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization, Brad Wilcox reveals the anti-family messages and policies coming out of Hollywood, Washington, the media, academia, and corporate America that have weakened marriage And he explains why America's most fundamental institution matters for our civilization more than ever. I am really pleased to welcome my guest, Brad Wilcox. He is a professor of sociology, the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, the Future of Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Brad, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. You know, Brad, I'm fascinated with your National Marriage Project and the decision you made to write what I think is a very important book. How did this all start? So this really began actually here at the University of Virginia. I was raised by a single mom, Newt, and was thinking as a college student here at UVA kind of how much dads mattered and then began to realize that marriage was an institution that connects men to their kids on average. And that led me to pursue a PhD in sociology at Princeton and then come back here to teach at UVA and bring the National Marriage Project from Rutgers, where it was, to the University of Virginia. And since 2009, we've been kind of producing reports and other research, including this new book, Get Married on a Regular Basis. The reports have been called The State of Our Unions, and they've been kind of chronicling the fortunes of marriage in America. And I started doing this with an eye towards sort of how marriage matters for children, But as I've been talking to students here at UVA, particularly young women at the university, there's just kind of more and more concern that I'm hearing from them about kind of their dating options. And they tend to outnumber men here at UVA, obviously. They also kind of would say that a lot of the guys are not really interested in commitment or don't seem to be kind of focused on a long-term relationship. So now I've been writing and thinking a lot more about kind of the importance of marriage for adults. And this book is designed in part to kind of give people a roadmap for kind of getting married and also kind of a rationale for focusing a lot more in their 20s and 30s on not only getting married, but on forging a strong and stable marriage as well. So that's sort of where I've gone with the National Marriage Project here at the University of Virginia. It's interesting because young adults, those under the age of 30, feel higher rates of loneliness compared to any other generation. Uh, February 2023, Gallup poll found that 17% of Americans said they felt loneliness throughout most of the day. For young Americans under the age of 30, that was 24%. And those in lower income households earning less than $24,000 a year, 27% suffer higher levels of daily loneliness than their older and higher income counterparts. I'm very interested in the study that was done by Cigna, where nearly half of all Americans report feeling lonely sometimes or always and that 
Gen Z, ages 18 to 22, is the loneliest generation with 79%. Think about that. 79%, 8 out of every 10, feeling lonely at some point. What I'm projecting in the book is that at least one in three young adults today, you know, folks in their 20s, like you were just talking about, will never marry. So we're sort of seeing what I call the closing of the American heart unfolding before us, where we're going to see record levels of sort of permanent bachelors and permanent bachelorettes. And then also, I think, record levels of childlessness among the 20-something cohort today. So I'm trying to do my part to... (laughs) kind of push back against this closing of the American heart and kind of give people some reasons to be more intentional about dating and getting married. And then some advice to about how to forge strong and stable marriages for this 21st century moment. Well, what leads you to assume that there's a direct correlation between loneliness and marriage? So we do know, for instance, from work done by Dan Cox, my colleague at AI, that single millennial women are twice as likely to say that they're often lonely compared to their married peers. He's done other work too, just kind of drawing an empirical connection between loneliness and marriage. We know too from some new work done by the University of Chicago economists that happiness in America has been dropping since the early 2000s. And the number one factor that this new study from Chicago attributes this to is this closing of the American heart, this drop in marriage. That's the biggest contributor to declines in happiness in America. So obviously, I kind of live and work in the shadow of Thomas Jefferson. I mean, literally, I kind of live, you know, just sort of below his Monticello. And he was obviously famous for penning, among other things, the Declaration of Independence. Talk about the pursuit of happiness, that kind of classic American pursuit. And more and more Americans, Newt, are having difficulty realizing that pursuit in large part, I think, because they're not able to get married in the first place and then stay married in the second place. This may be too pragmatic and therefore not necessarily accurate, but it strikes me that there's a whole logical pattern. If you're living alone and you go home to an empty apartment or an empty house, rather than being with somebody you almost inherently, I would think, would be more lonely. What am I missing? No, you're, I think, kind of hitting the nail right on the head. And in the book, one of the things that I talk about are the stories of young adults in their mid-30s who are lonely. I talk about a young man living in the outer suburbs of Washington, D.C., a guy that I'll call Scott, both for the book and for now. And here's a guy who's you know, reasonably successful, earning six figures, owns a home. He's a defense consultant, college degree, all that kind of stuff. And so by kind of the standards of the culture, which kind of thinks today that it's all about kind of the job and the money and the degree, he should be doing fine, but he's not. He says, you know, I've got degrees on my wall. I've got accomplishments and certificates, but it doesn't mean anything in the end, he told me. He says, I have to get up every day and look in the mirror and realize I'm alone. I have nobody. A young man who's in his mid-30s and keenly feeling the lack of a wife and kids. Or take Taylor, who lives in the Rocky Mountain West. And she talks about kind of prioritizing her career over dating, really, with an eye towards marriage in her 20s. And now she's in her mid-30s as well. And a career in digital marketing hasn't kind of delivered as much meaning and value to her as getting married and having kids. She does babysit for her nieces and nephews, and she likes that. But she told me, she says, the older I get, I'm like, you know, is there a chance 
that I could have a family of my own right now, do fun things with them, finger paint, whatever. I don't know what kids do. So these kind of stories kind of give you a sense of how obviously there are some folks who are flourishing as singles, but we are seeing that on a lot of these emotional indicators from loneliness to happiness to life satisfaction, Newt, that single Americans today are more likely to be floundering and even more so today relative to, say, 15 years ago. Is being lonely lead them to focus on trying to find somebody or does it lead them to assume this is an unavoidable fate? You know, I think in some cases it makes them more intentional about dating or putting themselves into social situations, whether it's, you know, the office Christmas party or the local church or volunteering at the local food bank. If you want to get married, those are the kinds of things that I think would be helpful to do. But in other cases, and I think Scott's story is kind of an example of this, there seems to me there's kind of a vicious cycle where once you kind of feel like marriage is beyond your grasp, then you are more likely to kind of potentially retreat from social life, from, in in Scott's case, actually religious life. He became less religious than he was as a 20-something guy. So that's obviously the more negative response to a situation like that. I like your term... The closing of the American heart. Is that yours? It is. Yep. It's one of the sort of phrases that I talk about in the book. I think in a sense, you're suggesting that for a lot of the people who are lonely, they really find it hard to open their heart to somebody else. Yeah, that's correct. But I also think, and you know, I know you've been talking a lot about sort of technology and social media and whatnot. I also think too, it's just the nature of the beast since 2010, that screen time is competing with social time and dating time and opportunities. That's also part of the challenge that's facing us too. It raises an interesting question. I think a generation ago, I would have said that it was the pressure of employment and focusing on your job and deciding that you couldn't do both. The sort of the whole liberation of women and Betty Friedan and that kind of thing. But I run into young people who are so immersed in their phone that They literally don't have a very good ability to talk to people. Correct. Yes. They'll text you even if you're in the same room. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was at a July 4th party here in Charlottesville, Virginia, not too long ago. And there were a bunch of teenagers sitting on the front lawn preparing to watch the fireworks go off. And they were sitting on the lawn. Some of them were talking, but many of them were just texting. And as you were saying, they were texting one another, which was just so shocking. So I talk about this in terms of kind of in the book as sort of our electronic opiates today. And it's both... You know, our phones, but also I think looking for teenage boys and young men and even middle-aged guys too nowadays. It's the Xbox. It's gaming as things that are drawing us away from in-person connections. loneliness, you have people who are not getting married, but then you go a step further and you say that marriage is the key to saving civilization. I mean, that's a pretty big claim. Why do you believe that? Well, I think as you probably know well, and maybe more than others, there's obviously a lot of folks who think that who is the next occupant of the White House is the most important kind of issue facing our country. And while I don't want to minimize the importance of the election, I want to sort of stress that kind of who's in our house, you know, or who's in my kid's house, you know, is often more important than who's in the White House, right? So the point there is that, you know, as Jefferson said, he talked about life, liberty, and 
as I mentioned, the pursuit of happiness. And when it comes to life, what we're seeing, we've got a new study coming out, these family studies from the Brookings scholar, Jonathan Rothwell, is that the number one predictor of deaths of despair across America is marriage rates. So especially when working class men are not getting married, not staying married, much more likely to succumb to alcoholism, drug abuse, or direct suicide. When it comes to liberty, I think you can appreciate that one of the biggest drivers of the growth in the federal bureaucracy is the falling fortunes of marriage and the stable two-parent family. But then also kind of we know that the strongest predictor of the health of the American dream is the share of two-parent families in a community. This is from work by Raj Chetty at Harvard. So kind of think about that as one expression of positive liberty in America, kind of can you make it in America? And if you come from a neighborhood, a community where there are lots of two-parent families and you're a poor kid, your odds of Realizing that dream are much, much higher. But if you come from a neighborhood where there's lots of single parent families, they're much, much lower. And then, as I said before, the macro level, the biggest happiness factor is marriage trends. And then for individuals, what my book shows is the top predictor of happiness for both men and women is not money. It's not their job. It's not sexual frequency. It's the quality of their marriage. And so happily married folks are just doing way better than their fellow Americans who are not happily married and their fellow Americans who are single. How do you reverse this? Let me back up for a second and just say, I think this also fits into the explosion of drug addiction, the explosion of homelessness, the explosion of violence caused by people who are mentally ill, because in fact, the system can't accommodate and help people come to grips with life. And so you have a substantial number of people who are basically damaged by the act of living in isolation and the act of having no support mechanisms. So how do you turn that around? So I think obviously part of the subtitle is Defy the Elites. And when I first kind of released notice of the book, there were lots of smart journalists, elite journalists who were pushing back and they're saying, well, elites are doing great. Brad, what are you talking about? Defy the elites. And my point is that too many of our elites talk left and walk right when it comes to marriage and family. I have a piece in The Atlantic coming out on this next week. And the idea there is that they themselves are kind of living marriage-focused lives, family-focused lives oftentimes, but they're presiding over Hollywood enterprises or legislation in Congress or journalistic articles appearing in mainstream outlets that are basically denigrating or devaluing marriage or kind of minimizing its importance. In the book, I talk about a piece that came out when I was finishing up the book. It was trending on Twitter from Bloomberg that said that women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer. And it kind of basically presented a story that suggested that marriage and motherhood were pathways to immiseration and misery. Since all the women who were kind of profiled, who were single and childless, were doing wonderfully. And we're now actually kind of getting this message, too, from the online right, people like Andrew Tate as well. So I think part of the challenge is to kind of encourage our elites broadly defined, whether it's in the C-suite or up on Capitol Hill, to do a better job of passing legislation, running stories, having scripts and movies that paint not a kind of rose-colored view of marriage and family, Newt, but one that's actually truthful. I think that would be helpful in terms of just changing the culture. On the policy front, I think tackling the marriage penalty embedded in a lot of our means-tested programs and policies would help working-class families who often face pretty big penalties and things like Medicaid from getting married. When it comes to our churches, having more ministries, like there's a ministry called Communio, which is serving Catholic and 
Protestant churches across the U.S. upping their game on the marriage front, I think, would be a helpful thing. And then I think, frankly, trying to figure out ways to help families, both with legislation on Capitol Hill, but also with kind of just advice about ways to kind of tame the technological beast and to kind of help families have both parents and teens kind of put their phones in the kitchen corner, you know, when they come home and leave them there for the duration of most of their evening or weekend. There's more that I say in the book. We just have to be, I think, more intentional on a number of fronts, the cultural front, the policy front, the religious front, and then to what we're doing in our homes to kind of build a culture that's more family friendly. You make a point that actually ethnicity is the largest single predictor of marriage rates. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So one of the things that I did was kind of talk about, there's a lot of bad news to discuss when it comes to marriage and family in America today, but there's good news as well. And one piece of the good news in the book is there are four groups of Americans who are flourishing, relatively speaking, when it comes to marriage. One is Asian Americans, as you just mentioned. One is religious Americans. Another is what I call strivers, Americans who are college educated, have kind of more of that long-term orientation professional orientation that's financially beneficial for families. And then conservative Americans are the fourth group that are more likely to be doing well on the marriage front. And when it comes to that first group, Asian Americans, we see that they're more likely to be getting married in the first place and staying married in the second place. In fact, there's no group of Americans who are more likely to be both married and stably married than Indian Americans, especially immigrants directly from India. So that kind of just gives you some sense that what we're talking about is not just about money and class, it's also about culture. And I think we can all appreciate the ways in which the Indian culture has been for a very long time, pretty marriage minded. Do you see any of that spreading? I mean, is it literally limited to those ethnic pockets? Well, I think we have seen just in the elite circles that I track, there was a book published this fall called The Two-Parent Privilege by Melissa Kearney, an economist at Brookings of all places and very positive kind of take on marriage and kids got a lot of good attention. So I think that's a hopeful sign. I hope my book obviously advances the conversation too in the media and other venues. But beyond Asian Americans, yeah, I do think we see certainly in the religious world, there are new ministries like the one I just mentioned, Communio, that's serving a lot of churches across the U.S. And my own parish here in Charlottesville, Virginia, there's been an uptick in young marriages from Catholic Who's. That's the Catholic student group at the University of Virginia. And I've never seen a group of Catholic students at UVA, and I've been in touch with them for the last 20 years, who've been so kind of focused on dating and marriage, you know, recognizing that, <laughs> that the broader culture is having a lot of difficulty. So there are some, I think, what we might call points of light on the horizon. But I also want to be honest with you, Newt, I think that sort of for the broader society, the trends are not going to be good, at least for the short term. And so we've got to be more intentional about giving people kind of a roadmap that will kind of bring them to higher ground and avoid what I would sort of view as a kind of demographic tsunami that's coming our way. And since across from East Asia across the Pacific and going to be hitting our shores in the coming years. You mentioned a while ago that there are legal consequences to getting married that are negative that, frankly, I thought we had taken out of the system. Do you know, has anybody put together, if a new administration came in and they wanted to be strongly pro-marriage, has anybody put together a list of the things that should be repealed or the things that should be changed? 
So I have a chapter with an AI volume that's going to do some of that. But yeah, I've got some ideas about how, for instance, to tackle the marriage penalty in our means-tested programs. Things like Medicaid would be one example. Their income tax credit would be a different example. Food stamps would be a third example. I also think it'd be helpful too, both at the federal and the state and local levels to talk about what's called the success sequence, which means, as I think you probably know, encouraging young adults to get at least a high school degree, work full time in their 20s and get married before having children. And if you kind of follow those three steps, your odds of being poor are just 3% and your odds of being in the middle class are higher are 86% as you head into your late 20s and 30s. I think too many of young adults don't appreciate how much, not just actually marriage, but even full-time work. We're seeing, I think, troublingly, a large number of young men, you know, especially young men who are not on that kind of striver or that college track, are not working full-time. They're kind of moving in and out of different gigs, whether it's driving Uber or working at a fast food restaurant. Also seeing vis-a-vis the whole marriage and love issue that a lot of working class couples are couples now where she works more hours than he does, makes more money than he does. And she also does more of the housework. And if they've got kids, childcare, and that's obviously a recipe for relationship disaster. So we've got to be thinking about that issue as well, encouraging young adults to appreciate the value of marriage and work, especially for young men. You also talk a little bit about the concept, which I frankly had not heard of about the rise of the, I may say this wrong, but the trad wife, social media. What is that all about? That's totally new to me until I saw your book. So there is kind of like, as we can appreciate, there's a way in which social media kind of balkanizes. It creates all these different subcultures across the spectrum. And one of them is kind of the trad wife subculture. It's kind of, you know, basically urging women to embrace marriage, motherhood, and traditional roles and kind of celebrating domesticity, femininity, beautiful dresses, beautiful kitchens and homes and meals and all that, caring for kids. And we've seen some of that, particularly in the Mormon community in the last decade, but it's now kind of spread to many other parts of the internet as well. So that's certainly part of what we're seeing. Now, but when it comes to kind of how does this sort of play out for ordinary couples, I've got a kind of somewhat of a complicated message in the book in terms of gender. So what I see is that for women, for instance, having a husband who had a, you know, embodies some classic masculine traits like protectiveness and being a good provider and being even physically strong. These are all things that women across the spectrum tend to appreciate in men. But when it comes to kind of how you divide work and family, not seeing a huge connection for kind of the average woman to her happiness. So I kind of bundle this together, Newt, as a kind of a neo-traditional model is sort of on average, often attractive for today's married women, especially married moms. And but traditional pieces are still looking for guys who are reliable providers and are protective of them in a variety of contexts, socially, physically, et cetera. But they're also looking for guys who are engaged with the kids across the ideological spectrum, engaged dads are definitely appreciated by women. But how you kind of divide up housework and paid work is pretty flexible today in terms of how that connects up to marital happiness for today's women. There are a variety of ways to be positive in a long-term relationship. I mean, is that part of your message? When it comes to the division of housework and paid work, what I'm basically saying here is that there's no one model today that correlates consistently with a better outcome. And that would be, I think, kind of maybe good news for folks in the center of these sort of gender wars. 
I think where my conclusions would be more traditional is just sort of saying that I think there are important ways in which women are still looking, even women on the left, implicitly, though, for them oftentimes, for guys who are protective, ambitious, hardworking, and are employed on a full-time basis. So those kinds of traits and characteristics are still very much appealing to women, even on the left who think of themselves as either egalitarian or even say things like gender is fluid. But when you kind of push beneath to like, what makes you happy? You know, then they'll talk about the way in which, you know, their husband is hardworking or protective or ambitious, even if they're kind of ideologically on the left. There's this conflict, though. I listened to some of the other day, it really surprised me. I've always thought of it as being pretty liberal, but who said, We've had a generation of telling young males that they're inferior, that they are the problem, et cetera. And he said, you know, you do that long enough and you really do have an extraordinary withdrawal and an unwillingness to compete. And this goes back to books that were written 20 years ago about undermining the whole concept of masculinity. So you didn't just have a pro-feminism, but you had an anti-male kind of part to that. To what extent has that also combined, I think, with the ability to amuse yourself with computerized games so that you literally, on a relatively low income, can occupy yourself and feel like you're busy having fun? You don't need to go out and do all these things. I talk about a male malaise, you know, for younger men and teenage boys. And I think it's partly about these electronic opiates that give, you know, teenage boys, young men, the simulcra, right, of being that white knight riding on your horse, but just doing it all on the Xbox. So that's part of the problem. And I think the other part of the problem is that we're not giving young men a constructive model of masculinity. And so they gravitate to people like Andrew Tate, who kind of give them a more misogynistic model of masculinity. And if we were as a culture giving young men a distinctive model of masculinity that they could buy into and identify with and guide their transition into adulthood, we'd be doing a lot better by them, but also by dating and marriage as well. You describe the degree to which very often the next generation can't sustain the economic success particularly if they come out of broken homes or situations where they don't end up getting married. And I was struck because I just saw a study a couple of days ago that the five wealthiest families in Florence in 1471 are the five wealthiest families in Florence. That because they have very strong family ties, they have a very strong sense of generational obligation. Thomas Mann wrote about the Budenbrook cycle where you go from shirt sleeves to wealth to shirt sleeves in three generations. Well, apparently the Medici and others have figured out they don't want to do that. And they somehow instill in their children the obligation that you are going to manage this, you are going to maintain this. And it's worked now for 500 years. Yeah, there have been a number of studies in recent years, both in England and in Italy, kind of in this spirit. And it does, I think, remind us that there is an intergenerational feature to family life that Americans can lose sight of. Kind of tending the fires, you know, on the home front can be good for not just you and your kids, but even your, in a sense, your grandkids. And by contrast, 
if things are not going well in one generation, they're often not going to go well in not just the next generation, but the third generation and beyond. You make that point from a different angle when you point out that males who come from non-intact families are dramatically more likely to end up in prison. Can you comment on the degree to which growing up in a sort of chaotic environment contributes to being unable to function within a normal framework? Yeah, one of the most striking findings in the book, from my perspective as a scholar and as a social scientist, is just the finding from the NLSY 97's big federally funded survey that tracks people over time, is that boys today who were raised in any kind of non-intact family, basically, are about twice as likely to land in prison or in jail than their male peers who are from intact married families. And more particularly, that young men are being raised in non-intact families are more likely to spend some time in prison or in jail than they are to be graduating from college. So it kind of gives you two sets of stats here on this. So young men from intact families with mom and dad in the household, 38% of them graduate from college. Only 9% of them would spend some time in jail. You know, it could be a night in the cling for a fight at the bar, right? But some prisoner jail. By contrast, boys being raised by single moms, 19% of them will spend some time in prison or jail by the time they turn 30. Only 15% of them will graduate from college today. So there's just no question that when it comes to school and problems with the law, young men are more likely to have a pretty you know, negative outcome when they don't have their married parents. Now for girls, the story there is more about kind of the emotional piece. We see a lot higher levels of depression, sadness for girls in non-intact families. And that's kind of where their kind of family chaos is expressed. And there's a new book coming a week after my book by Rob Henderson that kind of chronicles. He was you know, raised kind of a single mom and then foster care and then adoption and his adoptive parents got divorced. And his book coming out a week after mine kind of gives you more of a personal story about how his fortunes in school and life ebbed and flowed with the stability of his family background. But as you look at all this, are you optimistic or pessimistic that we can turn this around? I think short term, I'm pretty pessimistic. I think that the trends are pretty strong right now towards less marriage, less dating, fewer kids. I think we're going to see a record number of young adults today who are going to end up kinless, what they call bare branches in China, without the benefit of a spouse and children to sustain them, especially in midlife and later life, financially, health-wise, and emotionally, too. But I do obviously also show groups that are managing to make it marriage-wise, Newt. And I do see efforts in civil society and in my own in-world where people are forging strong families. And I give people some advice about how you can yourself kind of beat these larger trends. So I think that's sort of the hopeful note in my book is kind of giving people a roadmap for how they themselves can forge a strong and stable marriage today. Brad, I'm really curious. How do young people today get marriage advice, particularly if they come out of a non-traditional background and don't have immediate access in their own family? Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of what we're seeing is that people are turning to popular shows like Bachelor and Bachelorette, and they're turning obviously to Instagram and TikTok too, and kind of taking cues from influencers of one stripe or another. And I think the challenge with that kind of messaging oftentimes is it's more superficial in terms of the kind of things that are being stressed in terms of maybe it's looks or humor or charm or money as sort of the markers of a good dating partner and even a good spouse down the road. I think also you can see too in the pop culture and overly romanticized 
understanding of love and marriage. And I've got a piece in the Wall Street Journal coming out on what I call the soulmate myth and begin with Taylor Swift's song, Lover, which again, kind of gives us a very romantic view about marriage. And I think what the challenge we face is kind of letting our young adults know that yes, romance is important. Yes, looks and money are things worth kind of keeping in mind. But when it comes to forging a strong and stable marriage, you really need to look for qualities of character, things like loyalty, fortitude, fidelity. These are the kinds of virtues that would be part and parcel of a good long-term relationship, a good marriage, and would be the foundation for a strong family life as well. So I think that's the challenge. And to your point earlier, I think having people who are online kind of giving this message in accessible and engaging ways is part of what's needed too, to kind of counter what people might otherwise encounter on their screens. So given everything we've learned about young people today and the dysfunctionalities and the lack of accurate information, what advice would you have for somebody who is looking for a spouse? So one of the things that my colleague, Dr. Wendy Wang, has found in her research is that couples who meet in some kind of religious event or activity or meet in college in person are more likely to be flourishing. And the couples who meet online or in bars and taverns are the least likely to be flourishing in their marriages. Now, it's just a correlation, but it's worth kind of thinking about. I think the point I'm getting at is it's important to try to sort of maximize your time as a young adult doing things in person, whether it's socially and after work. If you're religious, you know, in some kind of church or synagogue, college, and not listening to parents and peers and professors who would tell you to, to kind of push all that off until your late 20s or early 30s. Because what we see is that couples who get married kind of in their 20s, roughly defined mid 20s, are more likely to be happily married. And I think today more likely to avoid ending up kinless. So I would just be intentional in part about using opportunities in your early 20s and mid 20s, whether it's in college or in the workplace to meet people in person and not just to rely upon your smartphone and dating apps as well. I would also encourage men to be more intentional and more courageous in terms of asking women in their circles out and then encourage women to be more kind of flexible and kind of giving the guys a chance, you know, maybe a second date, even if you're not necessarily convinced on the first date. I know plenty of people, including myself, who kind of had to really woo someone over a period of time to kind of seal the deal. My wife and I dated for on and off for about three years before we got married at age 24. And we've been married now 28 years. So that's also a piece of advice that I would give them. And finally, again, I would just stress the importance of looking for character and shared values as really crucial foundations for a strong marriage, more than whether they kind of meet all of your criteria for the perfect soulmate. I think character is king. And you've got to look for things that would make your spouse down the road a good wife and mother and a good husband and father. I really appreciate the creativity and the determination that you have shown in the work you're doing. And I want to encourage you to continue. Your point's not trivial. This is, in fact, at the heart of civilization. And a great deal of our current collapse in terms of our cities and in terms of crime and drug addiction and suicide, relates back directly to the challenge of loneliness and the challenge of a society which has broken down what had been historically, for virtually all civilizations, the central building block on which the civilization resides. So I think the work you're doing is really, really important. Well, thank you. I think we know that the state of our union depends in important ways on the states of our Unions, plural. So I think that's certainly a key message this book is offering to the general public. Well, I want to thank you for joining me 
Your new book is Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. I want to encourage our listeners to get a copy. It's available at Amazon and at bookstores everywhere. And the work you're doing at the University of Virginia on the National Marriage Project can be found at nationalmarriageproject.org. Brad, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you to my guest, Brad Wilcox. You can get a link to buy his new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.